Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I wonder, what was the last thing you lost? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them what the last thing you lost was, if you can remember. Just for 30 seconds, turn to your neighbor and share with them. Well, it sounds like I shouldn't trust you lot with my car keys, if all this chatter is any indication of how well you look after things. Um, over the coming weeks, between now and the summer break, we are going to focus on Luke chapter 15, and especially the parable of the lost son. And my hope is that by doing so, as we take the time to dwell in this small portion of Scripture. And we may draw in other portions to help us see it more fully, but as we dwell in this small portion, most especially, that we then might see the richness of these parables and appreciate as much of their relevance for our lives as possible. Because it's not only keys and wallets, glasses, children, grandchildren that we sometimes lose when we're out and about, so hopefully that doesn't happen too often. We also can lose so much more. I have friends who within themselves feel lost at times. They are confused, maybe unsure of the future, struggling to join the dots or chart a way forward, maybe stuck in a never-ending cycle of difficulty. It's not only stuff we lose. We can lose a whole lot more than that. In the time of Jesus, the people of God, the Israelites, had lost things as well. They had lost their independence and were now governed by Rome. They had lost the glory days when the royal line of David sat upon the throne such that the nation prospered. Much had been lost. And the people longed for God to fulfill His promises, to send the Messiah, the promised one, the King, who would rebuild the nation, bringing hope and justice and peace, and ushering, ushering in the kingdom of God upon the earth. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and rumors start to fly that this might be the Messiah, this, this guy might be the Messiah, well, it raises all sorts of questions including for the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders had their ideas of what the Messiah might be like and what he would achieve. They had a vision of how God's kingdom would take shape and, in particular, who would qualify for membership in that kingdom. For the Pharisees, moral and religious purity was paramount. They believed that God would only restore Israel if and when the nation turned to God and followed God's law more completely. But for all the religious leaders, no matter what school of thought they came from within Judaism, Jesus posed a quandary. On the one hand, 
This guy is doing and saying some incredible things, things that no one could do if God wasn't with him. But on the other hand, he is saying and doing things that go completely against all common thought within Judaism. For the Pharisees, one particular issue is that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He eats and welcomes tax collectors and sinners. And for the Pharisees, that's to them a complete breach of God's law. There's no way that God would sanction such behavior. There was a rabbinic saying that said, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law. The wicked were cut off. They were of no value, even if you could persuade them to become part of God's people. You weren't to risk it. No tax collectors were written off. They were lackeys and disloyal. And those sinners, well, they are so immoral and unclean that they're of no value either. They have no place in the kingdom of God. Neither of these groups will feature in what God will bring about through the Messiah. They are cut off from the things of God. And so they mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, because how could any Messiah eat with such people and in doing so show them acceptance and solidarity? I wonder, I wonder, do you ever feel lost in these ways? Do you feel cut off or that you don't fit? Maybe you feel of lesser value or that you don't make the grade. Maybe you're caught in a lifestyle that is unhelpful. No one might know of it. And it might not be headline grabbing, but it still makes life hard and leaves you feeling lost. Or maybe you look at your life or the life of those you care about and it's not what you want it to be. And you wonder, have I done wrong? Has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Is that the kind of lostness you face? There comes a time in all our lives, friends, maybe more often than we prefer, when it is more than our keys which we lose. And in those moments, I wonder what, if any, hope you take from your faith. In our passage today, Jesus speaks into the lostness of his audience. To those first hearers, both the religious elite and the religiously bankrupt, Jesus shares good news, and his three parables are his answer to the questioning and objections that he faces. In the first two parables, a singular portrayal of God is conveyed. Jesus begins with that story, familiar story of a shepherd and his lost sheep. The shepherd has 100 sheep, but one has wandered off. And so he goes looking for that one, leaving the 99 behind. And to our ears, it might seem foolish to leave one, to leave 99 for one. But in the convention of the time, likely the 99 would be safe in the sheepfold, probably cared for by other shepherds. But that one sheep is in danger in danger. And because each sheep was of 
value, high value. Any shepherd knew that it was worthwhile to search diligently for the one lost sheep. Jesus simply appears to common custom on how a shepherd would care for his sheep. In the second parable, a woman has, one, has ten coins and she loses one, prompting a thorough search of her small property. These coins might have been her life savings, or they may have been coins she received as a wedding gift, for that was a custom of the day. But either way, the loss of one single coin would be a serious matter for this poor woman. And so she hunts high and low for that one lost coin. But to get the impact of these parables, you have to know what the rabbis were teaching in the time. There's a scholar called C.J. Montefort, and in the parable of the shepherd, he saw something new. Because the rabbis agreed that God would welcome the penitent sinner, but the idea that God takes the initiative, that God seeks out the lost and brings them home, that God is a seeking God, well, that's new. And that is distinctive to the teaching of Jesus. Similarly, the rabbis also wrote about the coin, the picture of the coin, but they used it very differently. If a man keeps seeking for a lost coin, how much more should he seek for the law? But there is not a single word, not a single picture of God ever seeking a lost coin, and certainly not of lost individuals. The characteristic feature of these two parables is that the Lord goes out to seek what is lost even before that individual <coughs> turns to God. What Jesus reveals to religious elite and the religiously bankrupt is that God loves with a love that is quite honestly extraordinary. God never says, it is but one, let it go, enough remain. God isn't content with how many we have here this morning, and too often we might be. God never nonchalantly says, you win some, you lose some. No, 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 Jesus says. The Father's heart is one of seeking love. For if a shepherd will go to that much effort for one sheep, and if a woman will go to that much effort for one coin, then how much more effort will God exert to recover a lost person? Friends, do you see what Jesus is teaching us? Do you see what He reveals of Father God's heart for you and I and for this world? Do you appreciate that God loves with a love that seeks us out and took the first step that even before you were born and became a member here and were baptized, even before you repented, maybe later in life, even before you stepped in this door, God was at work in your life. He was at work before you did anything. You cannot claim a single amount of credit for being here this morning, for counting yourself a Christian, His grace always comes first. Always. Do you appreciate that God loves you that way? That in all the ways we can get ourselves lost, 
from destructive life choices to inner confusion to an eternal future without God across the whole gambit of what it means to be lost. God seeks you out. He seeks to bring you into freedom and into life in all its fullness because he loves you with an extraordinary love. But the crazy thing is, Jesus goes even further, and he tells a third parable. And this one really bamboozles every one of his day. It completely turns the ideas of God on his head. The story is familiar to us. A father with two sons, and the younger son asks for his share of the inheritance, who receives it and promptly goes and spends it on wild living in a faraway country. And in his destitution, he returns home penitently, and to his surprise, he's received by his father. It's familiar, probably, to most of us. But if you don't know the customs of the day, you you miss the significance of what Jesus is saying. When the, the younger son says to the father, give me my share of the estate, the crowd's mouth would have dropped open. He did what? No way. And it's not because he expects to have a share. That was a fitting expectation. But you only get a share when the father dies. And so what the son is saying, to ask it now, is saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. But what does the father do? He divides his property. Interestingly, for those who like this kind of thing, property here in the Greek is very similar to the the word life. For the love of his child, the father will tear his life apart for the younger son. Here is a love that is startling. And yet Jesus goes further again. Upon the father's return, the the father runs to meet him and embraces him and kisses him, calls for a robe to be put on him and a ring on his finger, signs of being restored within the family. And again, the father goes further. He orders the servants to prepare a feast by killing the fattened calf. You've got to remember, they didn't have meat a couple of times a week like we do or more often, depending if you're a certain character. Meat was rare. It was for parties and special occasions, and yet the father commands a feast be held for this younger son who wished him dead. We often call this parable the parable of the prodigal son. And we understand prodigal to be extravagant, recklessly wasteful, generous in giving, having spent everything. We equate it with being wayward or rebellious of spending until you have nothing left. And yes, in the younger son, we see someone who has been prodigal. But the father is also prodigal. In every way, at every step, the father is reckless. He is extravagant in his love of the younger son. He holds nothing back and he gives his all. And in this portrait, Jesus is helping us see the character of our heavenly Father. That he is reckless in his love towards us. He is generous. He is extravagant. He holds nothing back. We might be better to say this is the parable of the prodigal father even the prodigal God. 
Often, when we read this maybe in church or in our quiet times, we end up focusing on the prodigal son. And we shine the light on the son, and then we equate ourselves with the son. And we end up probably feeling pretty good about ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as him. Don't we? And we think, well, okay, I'm not the best, but I'm not that bad. But when we put the, the focus on the Father, then, then two things can happen. And the, the first is that we can see a picture of God that to my mind is captivating, but equally unsettling. For we see a Father who loves us with a prodigal love and with a seeking love who seeks us out in our lostness and wants to restore us to wholeness, to give us hope in a future secure in His love. And that is good news. That is good news for so many of the times when we feel lost. And friends, I wonder if your picture of God includes labels like that. Would you include seeking and prodigal as ways to describe the love of God? And if not, is it time to let Jesus, through His Word, give you a fuller revelation of the Father? Is it time to come into knowing the love of God in these ways? But secondly, when the focus is on the Father, then we have to ask ourselves, do we show the love of the Father in our interactions with one another and to the wider world? I encourage you, maybe go and look at 1 Corinthians 13, that portrayal of love. But think about the opposite of it as well. Impatience, being unkind, envious, boastful, prideful, arrogant, rude, insisting on our own way, keeping a record of wrongs, being irritable or resentful. These all are the opposite of love in, in 1 Corinthians and all the opposite of prodigal love. And yet, how often in the past week have I, have you shown something on that list? We need to know and grow in the love of our Father. And I pray that in this season together, He might do that work in us, that we might know his love more fully and show it more fully to those around us. May it be so. Amen.